I'm Madison Allworth. I'm Juan Williams. I'm Liz Clayman, and this is the Fox News Rundown. Monday, January 8th, 2024. I'm Mike Emanuel. The United States is facing national security challenges across the globe from China, Russia, Iran, and even North Korea. And yet Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin was in the hospital for days, and the White House and key lawmakers were unaware. I think he's going to have to answer the questions, which he's not yet answered. Why was he in the ICU in intensive care? Uh, and what medical treatment was he receiving? We speak with Chairman of the House Permanent Select Committee on Intelligence, Mike Turner. I'm Chris Foster. 2023 closes out with another better-than-expected report from the Labor Department. The trend that we're seeing is a slightly cooling job market, but not enough that people are getting really nervous about recession, which is good news. Speaking with Fox Business Big Money Show co-host Brian Brenberg. And I'm Jason Rant. I've got the final word on the Fox News Rundown. Israel's war against Hamas has now entered its fourth month after the terror attacks on the Israeli people. National Security Council spokesman John Kirby says they won't stop until Hamas is no longer a threat. I will tell you that they believe that they still have a viable threat by Hamas, that the Israeli people are still under a threat by Hamas, an organization that has vowed to do October 7th over and over and over again, uh, that doesn't believe that Israel should exist as a nation. The United States is also facing national security challenges from Beijing as China aims to be the next great superpower. Sabrina Singh is the Pentagon Deputy Press Secretary. China remains our pacing challenge. We have not taken the eye off the ball when it comes to China. There's also the national security issue of the crisis at our southern border. As the White House and top lawmakers are facing funding deadlines, House Judiciary Chairman Jim Jordan notes the border needs to be front and center. Well, I think the number one priority is the border. I mean, we're on, we're on pace to get to 12 million illegal migrants coming into the country in the Biden presidency. I mean, that's equivalent to the entire population of the state of Ohio. And we're not a small state. We're the seventh largest state. With danger around the globe, Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin has been hospitalized after elective surgery and even ended up in intensive care at one point. Oklahoma Republican Senator James Lankford says the lack of transparency by Austin and his team was reckless. Even the apparently the National Security Council didn't know it. White House didn't know it. Congress didn't know it. We're at a time of a lot of turmoil internationally and suddenly have the Secretary of Defense more than just a matter of wasn't there actually sent over false information saying I'm working from home when he's not actually available at all. That's a whole different issue. Prominent national security lawmakers are alarmed. Well, this is incredibly unacceptable because not only do we have the Secretary of Defense and the Department of Defense uh, keeping this secret, not making it known to the public that obviously he's having a medical crisis. Congressman Mike Turner is the chairman of the House Permanent Select Committee on Intelligence. But apparently the White House was uninformed and even the National Security Advisor uh, was uninformed. This obviously affects not only his, his performance, but his judgment, his availability. It certainly affects his control and operations of the Department of Defense, when at the same time, you know, there are real critical issues occurring. Um, and uh, to have his, his hand off the wheel in a way that, uh, that is secretive uh, certainly begs the question of his health. Uh, I think he's going to have to answer the questions, which he's not yet answered. Why was he in the ICU in intensive care? Uh, and what medical treatment was he receiving? 
Let's pivot now to the war against Hamas. Uh, We've passed the three-month mark. A military spokesman recently announced that Israel's military has taken down Hamas's military capabilities in northern Gaza, now focusing on the northern and central portions. This seems like an important step uh, for Israel. How significant is this, and could it be leading us closer to a victory for Israel over Hamas? Absolutely. Is there is there progressing and diminishing and dismantling the capabilities of Hamas? Uh, then certainly Hamas as a terrorist organization, a proxy from Iran, will be diminished in its ability to attack Israel and to carry out uh, terrorist attacks. Hamas cannot remain in power. Uh, Israel's efforts to uh, try to remove Hamas's ability to operate as a terrorist organization uh, in Gaza is certainly incredibly important, and it's why the United States is supporting their efforts to do so. There's also been increased military focus pointed toward Lebanon after a top Hamas leader was recently killed in Lebanon's capital. Over the weekend, we saw some intense fighting between Israel and Hezbollah as they responded to this Hamas leader's death. Do you think this might lead to further expansion of the conflict? Well, I think Hezbollah has always been an Iran proxy. They're trained, they're funded, they're equipped by Iran, and they are part of the overall effort of Iran uh, to destabilize and attack uh, Israel. Hamas's ability, as it becomes diminished, the focus is certainly going to to be more on Hezbollah, especially as Hezbollah begins to take any actions to attack Israel, which there certainly have been movements and indications uh, of, of intent to do so. As you look to the overall area and Israel's ability to defend itself, um, Hezbollah's capabilities, its military, certainly is a threat to Israel. While there's been a lot of focus on the ground conflict, there's also the Houthis basically causing trouble in the world shipping lanes, um, creating havoc for a lot of global commerce. Uh, What are your concerns about the Houthis, and are you satisfied with the way the commander-in-chief and the Pentagon are responding? Right. This is a failure from the, of the Biden administration. As the Houthis in Yemen have begun to uh, attack commercial uh, shipping lanes and also um, undertake attacks uh, to our um, military ships and our presence in the area, they, they remain a significant uh, threat in the region. Uh, the Houthis are also an Iranian proxy. So once again, we see uh, with Hamas, with Hezbollah, with the Houthis, you know, Iran uh, through equipping, training, uh, and funding these organizations, destabilizing the area, attacking the West, attacking uh, democracies and, and commerce. Uh, the administration has been on the defense in the pr- area, trying to take down attacks by the Houthis instead of just going into Yemen themselves and uh, diminishing their overall capabilities uh, to, to perpetrate these types of attacks. But the other aspect here is that the administration's failure with Hamas, Hezbollah, and the Houthis is still you know, goes back to the, the root of Iran. The administration has coddled Iran, including continuing negotiations with them um, on uh, you know, this, this failed uh, nuclear deal, paying billions of dollars for um, people who were detained uh, in, in Iran. They've encouraged uh, Iran and have certainly not held them accountable. If the president were to call you up and say, Mr. Chairman, what should we do about Iran? I want to make sure you're on board. What do you think? Well, absolutely, there needs to be a coordinated response that the, the administration hasn't even called together our allies to significantly identify the threat that Iran poses as, as the world commercial lanes are beginning to be impacted uh, by, by Iran. Certainly, you know, our, our allies 
would stand with the United States in efforts to curtail Iran's ability to undertake support for terrorist groups and organizations uh, that are that are harming uh, the United States, our allies in Israel. Okay, let's talk funding, because when you return to session on Capitol Hill, you guys will be facing some critical funding deadlines, one being January 19th. President Biden's been working for a way to provide funding for many of our foreign allies, including Ukraine, Israel, and of course, House Republicans are pushing for something significant at the border. Your thoughts on these three priorities and whether, you know, basically how this will all play out? Well, the administration is, is going to have to uh, come to the table in a meaningful way and negotiate on the border. We, we all identify and the American public identify the uh, administration's policies on the border as a failure. But in fact, they're not a failure from the, the administration's perspective. The administration wants an open border. Six million people have crossed the border last month. A record number of people have come across the border. Speaker Johnson went down to the border. And as the uh, members of Congress were there with the speaker, people were still seen uh, crossing the border. Uh, the administration has got to, to understand that uh, Congress is not moving and that there's going to be a national security package. There's nothing more critical to our national security than our border. Um, mm-hmm. And also they have to understand that the American public want, want this addressed. Even so-called sanctuary cities are crying for the administration uh, to stop uh, the uh, huge migration that's occurring o- over the border. Uh, if the administration does come, in a meaningful way to restore back to where the Trump administration had remained in Mexico and had significantly diminished uh, the people crossing the border. And then I think there'll be great headway and great accomplishments to be able to get our national security uh, funded and our other bills funded and protect our border at the same time. On national security, was Hamas attacking Israel the best thing to happen to Vladimir Putin in some time because it shifted our focus toward the Middle East and away from Ukraine? There's no question that Vladimir Putin wants um, conflicts around the world. He's tried to encourage them. You know, he's tried to in in Europe. There are his fingerprints around the world in areas where uh, there are conflicts. But, uh, you know, the absolute tragic savagery of of October 7th, um, I think, gave everyone at least the resolve to focus dually both on Hamas and Iran and its terrorist proxies, uh, but also uh, on the issue of, of Russia and its ability uh, to um, you know, hold its neighbors as uh, as victims of its aggression. Um, and uh, I think uh, if, if Putin had wanted uh, overall these the conflicts that occur around the world uh, to, to take our focus off of uh, his atrocities, it's not going to occur. Speaker Johnson took a lot of key House Republicans to the border this past week. Um, obviously, with such a narrow majority, uh, two-seat majority at this point, Republican unity is going to be critical. Do you feel like House Republicans are on the same page when it comes to border security? Absolutely. And I think that there are overwhelming numbers in the House to support the national security package for Israel, for Ukraine, uh, and for Southeast Asia, mm-hmm. conditioned upon this administration coming to the table in a meaningful way and securing our border. Uh, there is no national security a threat that has a you know higher priority than our border must be secure. Uh, with your intelligence portfolio, I'm sure you hear plenty about China. When I ask you about what's happening with China, we see that they're ramping up threats in the South Pacific. How much attention do you believe the United States should be paying to this, and how can we continue to best protect Taiwan from Chinese aggression? 
Sure. Well, China is the next regional aggressor. Um, and certainly, as you were saying with Vladimir Putin, he would hope that China uh, would undertake uh, actions uh, today, but they have not as a result of the United States and the resolve of our allies. Certainly standing with Taiwan, ensuring that they have the weapon systems necessary to be able to deter China is incredibly important. Uh, that's certainly the lesson from Ukraine of pre-positioning weapons. Uh, it's not the U.S. boots on the ground that it's important. It's the ability for a nation to defend themselves. Um, Taiwan is you know, currently undergoing their own election cycle, and everyone is going to be watching the statements that are coming out of Taiwan as, as, as we look to you know, this, this democracy uh, and its, uh, its, its need, the United States and its allies, to support uh, Taiwan. Big picture, national security, how alarmed are you by what appears to be coordination between China, Russia, and Iran in terms of being a headache around the globe? Well, it's certainly very troubling, and, and it includes North Korea. We're having you know, weapon systems that are being used in Europe on Ukraine by Russia that are being obtained from North Korea and that are being tamed from, obtained from Iran. Um, and you certainly have coordination between China and Russia, you know, back to when um, President Xi of China stood next to Vladimir Putin in Russia. He made the statement that you know, the two of them are bringing about change that had not happened in 100 years. Well, that change that he's talking about, of course, is from World War One to World War Two, And that's where democracy defeated authoritarianism. It is certainly their goal that this time around that authoritarianism uh, would be the, uh, the victor. Uh, we're going to make certain that doesn't happen. Uh, but uh, Iran, North Korea, China, Russia are certainly, uh, as they come together, uh, embracing uh, their authoritarianism and their anti-democracy uh, aggression. The chairman of the House Select Committee on Intelligence, Mike Turner, thank you so much for your time. Wishing you a great year, sir. Mike, thank you so much and Happy New Year to you also. I'm Benjamin Hall, Fox News correspondent and New York Times bestselling author. Join me for my brand new podcast, Searching for Heroes. Make sure you subscribe to this series wherever you download podcasts and leave a rating and review. This is Jason Rance with your Fox News commentary coming up. 2023 was not the fiscal apocalypse some economists were predicting. Stock markets were up, inflation was down, there were 2.7 million new jobs and higher wages and the recession that a lot of economists expected just didn't happen. There has been a lot of pessimism about the economy that's really proven um, unwarranted. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen on CNN News Central. The last monthly jobs report from 2023 shows more job creation than most expected, 216,000, with the unemployment rate holding steady at 3.7%. Strong numbers on the face of it. You get the 216,000 off the top, which is much more than was expected. And relative to the last few months, you'd say, oh, that's a really good jobs report. And it is at the top line level. Fox Business Big Money Show co-host Brian Brenberg. But when you dig beneath the surface, and especially when you start looking at different surveys, what you find actually is that employment in the United States has decreased by about 600,000. The participation rate has decreased by a similar number. The rate went down to 62.5. So what it's telling you is there's some job creation in some sectors, but the broader labor market is a little bit weaker because for whatever reason, more people are jumping back onto the sidelines rather than getting into the labor force and working. 
Because initially the thought might be, okay, this number is so strong that we may be looking at uh, an increase an increase in interest rates or a slower decrease. Yeah, in I mean, rates. spell it out. So a, yeah. a strong number means the Fed gets worried that the economy is stronger than they want it to be, which is a reason for them to leave rates higher for longer. And the whole market is saying, please, 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 please cut interest rates. Do it as soon as possible. They were hoping for a March interest rate cut. But the chances of that, according to the market, have dropped significantly now. The participation rate, that's a lot of people dropping out. How much of that is, to look at possibly a bright side, how much of that is say, okay, the stock market did well last year. More people are saying, I'm going to cash out and retire. Yeah, could be that. Could be, look, I had a great 2023. I've got enough money to to live off of. I'm out of here. Um, It could be that maybe there was weaker hiring in some of those traditional holiday hiring sectors, Mm -hmm. and that was part of that effect. Um, but we don't know the answer to that. And these, these are all surveys, by the way. So when we talk about the jobs numbers, you have to remember we're looking at so two different surveys. So the employer survey is telling you they've added jobs, those employers, relative to last month. But the household survey, when you call these people up, what you find is a different picture. They're not working as much as they said they were the previous month. Yeah. And you get these discrepancies sometimes where you'll get this this job creation number and the unemployment rate goes up. Right. And it, it's hard to square unless you really You understand into that it. you're getting survey data. So what you want to look for are trends, movements, changes. That's what surveys can help you understand. Mm-hmm. The trend that we're seeing is a slightly cooling job market, but not enough that people are getting really nervous about recession, which is good news. We don't want a recession. Uh, Larry Kudlow, Fox Business, former Trump uh, advisor, our colleague here in the building, was saying uh, on the TV that um, what we were just talking about is something that Joe Biden should be talking about and mm-hmm. and, and really highlight this wage and highlight the wage gains and de-emphasize uh, what's still inflation. It's lower inflation, slower inflation than right. it was. Um, people just seem to look at the prices. Well, the, you're, pay, you're you're paying you're still paying more yeah, for stuff than you paid for. This is where you got to define your terms always. So the inflation rate, the change of how much prices are going up, is coming down, yeah. but the price level is still going up, and it hasn't come down. So, you know, if you're not a, a deep economy watch, you're just somebody who's reacting to what they see in the shelves at home. You're not seeing anything that tells you life's getting easier. All you're seeing is my prices are still really high. And that's the piece that Biden has not been able to talk about effectively. And, and probably because it's just actually a very hard reality. When, when average prices are up over three years by almost 20 percent, it's really hard to tell people that that's good news. And I think that's where the drag is coming from him. His numbers are abysmal. You know, given like where this unemployment rate is, which is very low, his economy numbers are abysmal. And it's for that reason more than anything else. Uh, Quick 2023 in review. Recession didn't happen. Inflation cooled off. GDP went up, not down. Stocks finished up 26 percent. Tech stocks went way up. Yet, like you said, most Americans are rightfully, some would say, bummed about the economy. Yeah. Again, it kind of goes back to what's the most fundamental data point of all of those. So if your 401k went up, you're happy. It's a future thing unless you're a retiree. Um, The jobs picture is nice. Uh, There's a lot of opportunities to get a job. So maybe that makes you feel a little bit less bad. But the most dominating factor for anybody in their life day to day is the stuff they need to consume. And so it's hard to get over that part of the story. And that part of the story last year got a little bit better, but it didn't 
dig into the problems that were built up. Yeah. And so you've got to be able to, if you acknowledge that, I think you're in a better place than if you try to ignore it. And I think what a lot of people feel like is their policy leaders have tried to say, quit worrying about that instead of saying, I understand why you're worried about that. And my number one focus is to fix that for you. That is kind of a strategy or messaging issue that I think has been the big gap for Biden over the past year. Yeah. And what you hear people talking about is, wow, I stopped at a rest stop the other day and a Big Mac was nine bucks. Yes. And I don't I'm not used to paying nine bucks for a Big Mac. And that's not a good indicator of prosperity or my financial situation getting better. Um, National debt has now hit $34 trillion, which may as well be 17 gazillion dollars to me. That does, that's not even, I don't know, it's not a number. You can't, you can't, the human brain can't conceive that number. Yeah. It's how many zeros is that? I I don't know. (laughs) I can't even conceive the number of zeros. Um, Why should we care? If we can't even, you can't even see the number, so you just block it off. Yeah. Why do we care? Um, It's one of those things where uh, even if you can't conceive it, You know, there's a lot of things in life you can't conceive. Illnesses that you don't yet have, you can't conceive what it feels like when that strikes, actually. But Mm -hmm. you know you shouldn't do things now that would increase the likelihood of you getting that, right? Yeah. It's the same with the debt. So I can't conceive the number, but I know it's not the way things should be going because in my own life, if my personal debt was on that trajectory, I would, that would be a problem. People would be intervening, hopefully, if they love me. Um, That's why we should care. We have a $2 trillion deficit in our budget just this year, adding $2 trillion to that number. So it's growing at a faster rate even as it gets bigger. Where that matters is when the rest of the world, when people who invest their money in government debt start to get nervous about the U.S. being able to pay that, and I can't tell you when that's going to happen, but I can tell you when it does happen these interest rates that we're worried about now are going to look like the glory days <laughs> compared to where interest rates are going, right? And we know that hurts our economy and it hurts our lives. So the irresponsibility and the fact that it will come due, even if we can't conceive of when, I think, is the counsel of wisdom now to say, stop living this way, so, but we're not. So what do you do? I mean, so much of it is what they call entitlement spending, stuff that they can't mm-hmm. right now legally do much about. Um, defense spending yeah. is politically tough to knock down. That's a huge, huge number as far as discretionary spending. It is. It's yeah. It's the um, I think it's the biggest. Still, it, it, although it, interest on the debt, yeah, <laughs> right, is uh, fast approaching, which yeah. is the problem. So what do you do? You can say, well, stop spending on these little tiny things and chip away at the margins. But that's like you know, you can't, in, you can't fix the budget without fixing those entitlement programs. And the only ways that you can fix them is by changing who the money goes to or how much they get or when they start getting it, right? I mean, that's those basically yeah. are your three levers. Um, it's easier to f- deal with that if you have a growing economy because a growing economy actually provides the revenue to, to help pay for those things. So to me, the ideal formula is be as pro-wealth creation as you possibly can. Um, and then when you're in that context, you've got to say, okay, so we've got three levers to pull. And I'm going to, as a politician, I got to figure out where they're going to let me pull the lever. And politically, good luck. You, um, 
you would have to amass a level of credibility as a politician, as somebody who is wise and who is forward thinking and has the common good yeah. uh, in mind in a way that I think is very hard for a politician right now to be able to do that. But, you know, that said, that's the opportunity. I mean, that's what you're aiming for. And it's not it. You know, if you can create the program, you can reform the program. Yeah. I mean, I'm not a rocket economist, but uh I, I maybe just politically, you just have to look into the future and say, okay, in this year, so far away that you're not going to worry about it because you're a kid, we're going to start raising the age, raising the age, raising the age. And then by the time it comes, it's not so bad. That, that, that's, you give, the key with any kind of program like that is you give people a huge runway to adapt. Yeah. It's unfair to pull the rug out from under them, but if you can give them a roadmap and it's a kind of a long roadmap, you might be able to get something done. Uh, 2024, uh, crystal balls are always cloudy. Uh, any, anything, any, is it a dumb question or any concerns, any reason for optimism? Yeah, I'll tell you what I'm watching in 2024. I am watching consumer balance sheets. I think that the, uh, credit card question, consumer debt question, and how that's going to affect spending is going to be a huge one this year, particularly with things like student debt repayments, which have restarted, but only about 60% of those folks are actually making the payments. That's going to come to a head fairly soon. I think consumer balance sheets are a little bit weaker than the market is giving them credit for. And if that's true and that that creates a pullback in spending, that's where I think that recession story that we've, it's kind of been kicked down the road could really pop up. Plus this, um, the high interest rates that we've got haven't seemed to made a huge dent in the economy quite yet. But March of 24, if you're, if you're talking historically, is when you would really expect to see that start to happen. So the first quarter or two of this year, I think, is going to be big in terms of how much those high interest rates have flowed through and affected the economy. All right. We'll talk about it when the time comes. Brian you bet. Frenberg, co-host of The Big Money Show on Fox Business, 1 p.m. Eastern, Monday to Friday. Thanks, Brian. You bet. Thank you. Here's a look at the week ahead. Monday begins a number of Republican presidential primary Fox News town halls, starting off with former U.N. Ambassador Nikki Haley. Tuesday will be Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, capped off by former President Donald Trump on Wednesday. Tuesday, a three-judge panel of the U.S. Court of Appeals in Washington will listen to arguments regarding claims of immunity from Donald Trump. The former president is appealing a lower court ruling which rejected his claim that he cannot face criminal charges from special counsel Jack Smith for seeking to overturn the 2020 election results. Thursday, Hunter Biden is set to make an initial court appearance in Los Angeles over tax charges. The president's son is facing three felony charges of tax evasion and false filing and six other misdemeanors for failure to pay taxes over a three-year period. Friday. That is so Mean Girls, the new musical version based on the stage adaptation of the 2004 film, hits theaters. And that's a look at your week ahead. I'm Tom Graham, Fox News. You know him, you love him from his radio show. I know. I can't believe they gave me a show either. Now, Jimmy Fallon is coming to Fox News on Saturday night. Look, I'm not here on behalf of either party. I just want to have a party. Now, that's what I'm talking about. So grab a frosty mug, pour yourself a beverage, and join me for the all-new Fox News Saturday Night with Jimmy Fallon. Fox News Saturday Night with Jimmy Fallon. Premieres Saturday, January 13th at 10 p.m. Eastern. Only on the Fox News Channel. Saturdays just got a whole lot funnier. Rate and review the Fox News Rundown on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. 
It's time for your Fox News commentary. Jason Rance. What's on your mind? Democrats refuse to take responsibility for the crime crisis they caused after the death of George Floyd. Now, they're pointing to 2023 statistics to absolve themselves of blame, arguing conservatives made up a crime crisis narrative. This isn't just a dishonest argument. It exemplifies a new depth of Democrat deflection. And it ends up proving that Democrats have blood on their hands. After reaching a record high number of homicides in Democrat-run cities across the country, 2023 experienced about 13% fewer homicides than the previous year. ABC News framed the statistic around public polling that shows Americans are deeply concerned with crime. Citing a recent Gallup poll, crime analyst Jeff Asher told ABC News, 70-something percent of Americans believe crime is rising this year. And 70-something percent of Americans in this case just happen to be wrong. New York-based journalist Ahmed Baba used the ABC News piece to pretend fears about crime are unfounded, claiming there's a, quote, stark disconnect between how a lot of Americans feel and what's actually happening. Disinformation is distorting our perception of reality. He said the disconnect was a result of, quote, overt disinfo from right-wing orgs like Fox News. Similarly, Axios claimed Republican criticisms of Democrats on crime was crumbling, while U.S. politics columnist for The Guardian, Chris Stein, lazily used misleading data to suggest the same. But crime is high, and we aren't wrong to feel concerned. We're simply looking at our cities the way we're supposed to. As I explain in my book, What's Killing America? Inside the Radical Left's Tragic Destruction of Our Cities, context is key to understanding crime statistics. We're seeing fewer homicides when compared to a historically high number of murders, all between 2020 and 2022. That detail's important. Surveys reveal that American concerns about high crime rates persist, primarily because current figures remain elevated compared to the pre-COVID era. During that time, law enforcement was fully funded and had broader operational latitude. And we can't forget that in a bid to deflect responsibility for the crime, a consequence of their defund police strategy? Democrats originally blamed the uptick in criminal activity to COVID. Therefore, it's logical to look toward 2018 and 2019 as benchmark years for a more accurate comparison of crime rates. New Orleans had the highest big city homicide rate in 2022. 65% increase from 2019 to 2020. Philadelphia's rate jumped by almost 50%. Atlanta's climbed by 75%. These cities had a lot in common. They were run by Democrats who embraced the defund movement. The quicker those cities abandoned the radical left reforms, the better they recovered in 2023. New Orleans invested in technology like drones to make policing easier and safer. Philadelphia refunded its police department with mayoral candidates in 2022 condemning the defund movement. Atlanta increased police staffing and used data to determine which neighborhoods to send more officers to. They did the precise opposite of what the defund Democrats demanded. Now, to be clear, the picture isn't bright everywhere. Seattle saw a historic number of homicides in 2023, while Washington, D.C. numbers rose 36%. Still, it turns out that allowing police officers to actually do their jobs, it's effective in reducing crime. Who would have thought that, right? Democrats, of course, are loath to acknowledge that their policies are the root of the crime crisis, and yet it's clear as day. Distancing from the radical left's influence on the criminal justice system has demonstrably enhanced our safety. I'm Jason Rance. 
You've been listening to the Fox News Rundown. And now, stay up to date by subscribing to this podcast at foxnewspodcasts.com. Listen ad-free on Fox News Podcasts Plus on Apple Podcasts. And Prime members can listen to the show ad-free on Amazon Music. And for up-to-the-minute news, go to foxnews.com. Thank <laughs> you.